Thank you very much. I'd like to invite Ajahn Damanando next. Uh, when Amravati opened, he was a, uh, a lay person, a member of the Northampton Buddhist group, but uh, he's one of those who uh, then went forth after Amravati had already opened, and so I'd like to ask him to um, offer his thoughts and recollections for everyone now. It's a great privilege to be able to address you. Um, if anyone was to ask me what was Amravati like 30 years ago, I would have to say a bit less developed. Uh, because the Sangha moved into a dilapidated school with decayed buildings. There were the, the roofs, there were no tiles on the roofs. There were what were called felt and pitch roofs. There was no insulation in the buildings. There were the, the doors and the windows fitted very badly, so there were lots of drafts. Uh, there was broken lino on the floor. And where we now have rooms, there were long dormitory areas. And <clears throat> the plumbing kept going wrong. And indeed, there was a heating system which was regarded as a joke. So that was the material circumstances, the setting that the Sangha came into. But I have to say, according to my memory, um, on the psychological level, the morale of people here was sky high because there was such great faith, a huge faith, in Lung Cha, his teachings, Ajahn Sumato and his teachings, and just in the general understanding of Dhamma. And <clears throat> we felt so sure of ourselves. There was so much conviction that you just felt sorry for people who hadn't heard about these teachings or come to the monasteries. Um, Lung Po was pulling in a lot of young people, so... There were huge numbers of youngish people coming in. Uh, I wasn't one of them. <laughs> uh, many of them going into white. So there was this very potent energy. Uh, people were prepared to practice very sincerely. Every seven or eight days we had an all-night sit. There was lots and lots of work. and pe Most people were prepared to work. And there was also this incredible interest or hunger for the Dharma. So... Um, I, I, and sometimes I felt we were fueled by Dhamma. There was a lot of Dhamma around in those days, a lot of it being talked about. And uh, I'll give you an example. We had these work periods, and if two people were found talking somewhere, and the work organizer went up and said, What exactly are you, do are you doing? they would say something like, We're talking Dhamma. <laughs> and he would say, Oh, okay. So in addition to, to that, there was the spaciousness of Amravati, which was very, I found very beautiful. In the middle of it all was this huge playground surrounded by very low buildings. There was no temple, no cloister, and no abbot's kuti. Um, but this incredible feeling of space, and people have talked about the sky, and then beyond the little hill there was the field. Now in those days... There weren't so many trees on the field. You didn't have the screen of trees that you have now. But there were very beautiful plants there. So when you went out in the summertime, it was very fragrant, very aromatic. And it was a lovely place to be in the summer. <laughs> I'll come to that. Yeah, so 
Anyway, on, on the first day that the Sangha arrived here, I, I was living up in Northampton. I decided to, to come and greet them, and maybe I thought I could even help them. But as it turned out, most people arriving that day didn't know where anything was. There were people walking around with huge bunches of keys, sort of inserting them in doors and trying to find things. It was, it was rather confused, so I couldn't really do much. But there was one memory that really stuck in the mind. I went into the building that's now the Sala, and inside the sala, there was an anagarika called Sister Kalyana, and she had been instructed to polish the lino, this broken, cracked lino on the floor. She had an electrical polisher, and she was... <laughs> and I walked past her, I thought, she looks a bit nervous. And I came back later, and I thought, no, no, she looks terrified. And it must have been very alarming for this community to have to come up from the relative comfort of Chithurst into this completely unknown prospect. Anyway, over the ensuing few months after that arrival, I was ferrying monks to various groups, to Cambridge, Bedford, Northampton, and so I had some contact with the Sangha. I knew the winter had been very cold here, but I was um, coming to the conclusion that I should take a, a year off work and become an or at least give it a go, uh, become an anagarika. So in the early months of 85, I was winding down what I was doing. I was emptying out my house, bringing quite a few artifacts and things down here, Southeast Asian artworks. Anything you brought was, was welcome. A Buddha Rupa, and then lots and lots of stuff from my kitchen, and sort of multiple trips. And anything you brought was welcome. They didn't have hardly anything. So eventually I arrived end of May that year, 1985, and I spent my first night in what is now the retreat center. And early the next morning there was a knock on the door, and in came Ajahn Suchito. And he said, we want you to drive to Heathrow in half an hour. And what had happened was that someone had had 200 pounds stolen from their coat in the shower the previous day or two, and they suspected an ex-prisoner who was living on site. So the plan was to take this ex-prisoner and put him down in Chithurst, where he could be kept under better observation, and the swap-over was going to take place at Heathrow. <laughs> so I think Ajahn Sajito also burst in on this guy just as he was waking up and said, we're going to take you to Chithurst. So anyway, <clears throat> uh, he said, you can, you've got time for a cup of tea, before we go, and then he came back with a quarter packet of crumbling custard cream biscuits and said, this is your breakfast. So that was my first breakfast at Amravati. <laughs> so anyway, I was, I was uh, due to become an anagarika, but I didn't immediately agree to, to, to take the eight precepts. I was feeling a bit pressurized. But after about a month... Uh, I agreed to, to, to go, go forth, if you like, uh, or take the eight precepts. And I remember the morning of that day, I'd never been ordained before or shaved or anything like this. The morning of that day, uh, I was in the shower block behind the kitchen, and Anagarika Brent was shaving my head, and behind us in the cubicles sat Anagarika Swa, and he was cracking joke after joke after joke. And suddenly I said to Brent, look, please, could you stop a moment? And I just put my head forward into my hands, and I howled with laughter. I thought it was a kind of release of tension, I think. And that evening, uh, there was a young lady called Elizabeth, 
uh, and I were up the front uh, in, in the Dhamma Hall. Long Paul was officiating for these eight precepts, uh, and so we became Anagarika and Anagarika. And afterwards, one of the Anagarics said to me, he said, it was like watching a wedding. So, of course, at that time, and even now perhaps, work was a major feature of our life. Um, you know, you come into a new site, or of course it was a little bit not quite so new by then, but uh, there was a lot to be done. And when you tried to do things, often it had to be done in a rather cumbersome way. And uh, the, the, the work meetings last, sorry, we would meet at 1.30 and work through till 5. Often there was something to do in the morning, usually cooking, or driving, I did quite a lot of driving. And I remember doing a chore where I had to clean five sets of different toilets. So in order to make the breakfast, I had to run between them. And um, if you were a gruel maker, you had to start at 3.45 in the morning because there was a wood-burning stove and which had to be primed or started. You had to get the, the plates hot enough to boil these great pans of water and then make the mixtures, the porridge, the tea, and so forth. And by the way, porridge, I say porridge, it was rice porridge, broken rice or uh, ground rice, and you were allowed to chuck in three handfuls of oats on the top. No more. Three handfuls of oats. So anyway, you got this out, you tried to get this stuff out for 7.10, 7.15, then we had the breakfast, and usually there was a reflection from Lung Por, so it was gone eight by the time that came to an end, and then everything came back onto the counter, and the gruel maker had to take everything from the counter to the scullery on his own uh, f- to stack them up for the washing, washing up person. So that you won't finish working till about 8.30. So that was five hours just to make breakfast. Other jobs like um, sandpapering window frames prior to painting them and we were constantly applying this paint called Demideck to the external walls of buildings. And then in the autumn of that year, we undertook the great project of insulating the retreat center. So most people wore overalls, they were wearing white paper masks, and everywhere there was this substance called rock wool, which was the insulating material. And not rock wool just sitting there and in the walls, but rock wool floating through the air as well. So it was quite, it was quite um, alarming sometimes, but also very you know, energizing. It was very uplifting to be working in such an environment. Now, the other aspect of that time was how communal everything was. So the idea that you could have a cup of tea back in your vihara with a few friends or on your own was just unthinkable. Uh, if you wanted to eat, if you wanted to drink, it had to be in the sala. And so we had obviously a, a communal meal, but also a communal breakfast. Uh, the pots would be in the center of the, of the room. Seniors would be served first. And... Uh, juniors such as myself, we would pass our cups forward and the cup would come back with porridge in it. We'd pass our cup forward, come back with tea in it. And the same at the tea time. That's how it went. There was nothing uh, individualized or in the viharas at all. So we got very used to these communal meetings. If you think about it, there would have with the puja in the morning, the puja in the evening, and the three, three times we met together, five communal meetings per day. And... We were kept going, if you like, by Longpore's presence. He, he offered many reflections, um, 
and anecdotes, obviously the, the, from the high seat formally, but also in these, on these occasions, often at breakfast he would give a reflection, and quite often at tea as well. So Dhamma was very, very constantly in our ears. We were constantly reflecting on things, discussing the Dhamma, and there was such a real live interest in, in, at that particular point. I don't ever remember it uh, being quite the same since, to be honest. Um, finally, towards the end of that year, we had the great electricity bill crisis. Uh, Amravati was going well, but suddenly no money. We couldn't pay the electricity bill. And as you know, as you're probably aware, this place sucks electricity like nobody's business. So what was Lumpur to do? He, decided, he consulted with various people, and then he, he, he bit on the bullet, and he decided to pull in all the electrical appliances. So the way he announced this was he, took, he, he was giving a Dhamma talk one night. It was a very, very powerful Dhamma talk. He took us deep into a kind of very safe, secure place, and then he said... I'm going to take away all your heaters and kettles. (laughs) And so my mind went, oh, he's going to take away all our heaters and kettles. (laughs) Okay. And the following day, they they did. They took all all the electrical appliances and locked them up in a room, including Ajahn Pabakaro's coffee maker. And in the viharas, you, we, there were going to be cold rooms, cold dorms, but in each vihara, the, man, the men's and the women's vihara, there was one room that was going to be heated with a wood-burning stove. So you could either go in the wood-burning stove room with other people or stay in your uh, customary place. Now, I, had, I knew there was going to be problems that winter, so I'd invested in a four-season sleeping bag. <laughs> so I chose to, to stay in the cold place inside this four-season sleeping bag, and I managed to sleep. So, <laughs> And the other thing that used to happen was that after the evening puja, people would queue in the kitchen. There was pots and pots of water bubbling away. People would queue with their uh, hot water bottle or their flask and get it filled, and at least have something warm to take back to their vihara. And then around that time, sometime, someone said to me, you're going to be sent down to Chithurst. I remember I was Anna Garrica, you're going to be sent down to Chithurst. I thought, why? What have I done? <laughs> I'm being sent into exile. <laughs> but that December, I was sent to Chithurst, and my recollections of Amirati at that stage come to an end. So I'll pass you on to the next person. Well, thank you very much indeed, Achan. <clears throat> to see that uh, such hardship was... Uh, not enough to put him off, but uh, instead it uh, strengthened his faith, and uh, he's um, now a very uh, <coughs> much appreciated and stalwart member of the community here. So next, I'd like to invite Sophie Chintamani, which you, who was one of the the group of nuns at the time who walked up from Chithurst. So she's uh, there in some of those pictures uh, of that time, coming through the gate, and uh, so she'll share some recollections with you all now. Yeah, I um, gave a bit of thought to what I might say today and how to condense it into 10 minutes. And um, most of the things I was going to say have been said um, in terms of some of the early memories, although it's interesting how they differ a bit from my memories. <laughs> um, so I, um, I'm sorry if I... Re- some of the things I say might be slight repetitions of, of what people have already said. 
but it's kind of it's interesting hearing people talk it's like all these it's like a sort of kaleidoscope and you've got all these different fragments of something that happened and our different kind of perspectives on it and how they all kind of intermesh and interweave in our own individual psyches and also the sort of communal psyche that is Amravati. So I, I, um, I ordained as a brown nun, Sila Darar as we were called then, a few weeks before we set off for Amravati. So I ordained at Chittest in early July and then we set off at the end of July on the... Um, the walk that Sister Chandasiri mentioned that we did in relays, carrying the Buddha relics um, round our necks in a specially constructed um, chamber. I think it was a bit of old pipe <laughs> with a little Buddha on top. And we never actually saw the Buddha relics, I don't think, but they were, they were very precious inside there. And we, we, we wouldn't put them on the ground. We always kept them raised up when we were camping. We'd put them on a log or something and... Uh, took it in turns to carry them from Chittas to Amravati. It took about, it was about two weeks, wasn't it, the, the walk? Something like that. And uh, I was lucky enough to be in the group that left Chittas, and also we did it, drew lots as to who was going to be in which parts of the relay, but I was in the group that left and also the group that arrived. And I, th- I don't think I had Sister Chandasiri's reluctance. Um, I found it very exciting that I'd just ordained into Brown, which is sort of going forth into the unknown in a way, and also going forth from Chittas to Amravati. And I hadn't ever been up here, so I didn't really have much idea of what it was going to be like. So walking down St. Margaret's Lane on a... Well, I remember it as being a fine summer's morning um, towards this new place... Um, was was really exciting and like a big adventure. And uh, my heart was really open to the whole kind of um, experience of what was going to happen as we walked through the gates, led by Sister Nanda, who was an honorary nun. She was probably in her late 80s. And she carried the Buddha relics through the back gates. And um, we were met by a group of people on St Margaret's Lane, and then we all came along and through the back gates and round the field, um, as Sister Chandisuri said, with the, with the double rainbow, which felt very auspicious. And, uh, and then we soon sort of were soon put to work, um, and there was a lot of work, as you've already heard. It, the buildings were in a terrible state, very run down, no insulation, a lot of the windows were rotten, and I was sort of soon started on um, sort of organising the window repairs. And there were 600 windows, I was told, and that by the time we got to the end, then we would be, you know, due to start back at the first window again. So I was sort of told I had a you know, job for life <laughs> repairing the windows at Amravati, which I kind of, um, yeah, came to accept might be my, <laughs> my karmic duty. Um, and the buildings were also very dirty. I mean, I remember that. They were absolutely filthy. 
and some of them, particularly the Lotus House, was the worst of all, and the Bodhi House was pretty bad. And I remember you would clean them, and then, at the, and then you'd clean them all again, and then you'd clean them all again, and each time you'd sort of go through another layer of dirt, but they'd still be like stains coming through the paint, kind of yellow stains from where some of the teachers used to smoke. And, and you know, very, very gradually, things started to kind of look a little bit cleaner and a little bit more orderly. Um, but there was this great spirit that, that many people have mentioned, um, a sort of pioneering spirit. And I think that was partly because we didn't really know what we were doing. I mean, we knew we wanted to create a big center for nuns and monks and lay people and children and families, but we didn't really know how we, was gonna, how we were going to do it. There wasn't a grand plan. There wasn't a five-year plan or a ten-year plan. It was kind of, well, let's try this. And who's around who can help do it? We didn't have any contractors in those days. We did all the work. So it was just like who was around and what were their skills and, you know, turn your hand to whatever it was. But we were very lucky in in that um, some of the people we had here were naturally very skilled and talented. Um, And I'd like to mention... um, Oh, I might get a bit emotional... (laughs) the first person who's got really emotional up here. Yeah, we, we were very lucky to have um, a, a nun called Sister Kaliana. <laughs> who, um, who had trained at Kew and was a very skilled um, gardener and landscaper. And she was here at the beginning, as um, Ajahn Damanando mentioned, cleaning the, the lino floor. But she was also here to kind of lead us in um, really the, the transforming the, the, the grounds, which were pretty barren. I mean, as someone reminded me yesterday, there were two rose bushes on the corner of the retreat centre and the, what's now the Ubon room. And there was a bush by what was the old Dummer Hall, where, where this is now. But there were no other roses, shrubs, flowers, really. It was just barren. And there were hardly any trees in the field. There was certainly no Buddha grove. And she was really behind all of that from my, in my memory. She, she had us all planting trees all around the field. She, she helped to design the Buddha grove, which has become this wonderful place now. Um, and all the planting up everywhere, the conifers over in the, the, nuns, the nuns area. And it, it's amazing to come back now, well, to come back over the years, but now 30 years later, and see how, what, what vision she had um, in, in the way that the whole place is now so beautiful and abundant, um, especially in the summer. So that just a little note of, of gratitude, really, that she was around and for all that she put into it. She, she converted to Christianity while she was a nun. <laughs> she became a Christian and left. So I don't think she's been back, but, um, uh, yeah, we were very lucky to have her and also many other very talented people. And, yeah, it was, just to say, you know, it was very physically very austere. And um, as as you've heard from other people, um, Ajahn Damanando might have survived in a, in a, whatever it was, special tog sleeping bag, but... That, that first winter when we had no heating and no insulation at all, I remember counting all the blankets 
that I slept under, and I, I would be wearing pretty much fully clothed in, in, in bed with a hat, um, in a sleeping bag with two hot water bottles, with a duvet on top and 20 blankets. <laughs> And I actually counted. I just thought, I wonder how many blankets I have got on my bed. And there were 20 on top of the duvet and sleeping bag and the two hot water bottles and a jumper and everything else. And just about warm enough then. But couldn't really move because it was so, <laughs> the weight of bedclothes was so heavy. Um, and, yeah, I remember that first, that first winter as well. We didn't have running hot water. We had to get all the hot water from, um, from the main kitchen and we'd have bucket baths and... And uh, and it was, but it was kind of all of that. I think partly because we were young and health, reasonably healthy, and also there was this great kind of community spirit. And I think it was very much um, about service. Um, certainly, that's my memory. Is that Lumpur Samedo would talk regularly, would encourage us about this, with the spirit of service and about every day trying to make our lives into a field of blessings for all beings. And that was the spirit, that we weren't here to practice for our own benefit, to be peaceful or enlightened or anything like that. We were here to, to build a place, to create a place where countless beings could come and benefit. Um, and the first major project we did um, was the retreat centre, before we did any of our own buildings. And that just seemed to be natural that we would, we, the idea was that we would create a place where people could come and, and practice um, and come on retreat, have a proper retreat centre, which we never had before. And uh, that, you know, we worked really hard making the retreat centre. The, the kitchen and the sangha room, the dormitories, and we were given all these old hospital lockers and, you know, just at the right time when I think they're even still there and the hospital lockers, getting it all organised and the shrine room and, and um, yeah, there, there was this great, this great spirit of service and, um, and love, I think, dare I say it. You know, I think there was a lot of love somehow. <laughs> not, love for, not love for each other, obviously, but, but there was... <laughs> not necessarily and, and definitely not at times, but... But there, were, there was a kind of pervading sense, and I, certainly that was, that's my memory anyway. Maybe it's rose-tinted, I don't know. Um, that kept you going through, through, through the hardships. And there was also a lot of humour and a lot of fun. We had some really wild characters who would turn up and kind of stay for a few months and um, work really hard, like a thief. And uh, so, uh, all, all, you know, I won't long list. I won't. I won't go on because most of you wouldn't know them. But we had some pretty um, interesting characters, and as well as well as unfortunately some rather disturbed ones who who didn't stay. Um, but it was always interesting and unexpected, and you never knew who was going to walk through the gates. And there was that element of of slightly making it up as you went along. And there were rules, of course. There was a vinaya, but. The, the basic vinaya was kept, but actually what was important was, was, wasn't that we all kept the vinaya, but that we were all here to, to give ourselves to something greater. And, um, and that kind of spirit of just, you know, doing your best and, and, and uh, um, 
not getting too stuck on, on, on the kind of all the, the, the details of exactly how everything was going to work out and, and being open to the unexpected and the unforeseen kind of allowed lots of um, really magical and miraculous things to happen here, um, which is in some ways um, you could kind of take for granted now, but in those days it, you know, it was kind of like watching a, a kind of miracle unfold sometimes. And I think the fact that we're all still here, or many of us, some of us are still here, and that the buildings are still here, and that so many of the trees are flourishing, and Ajahn Amaro is, is back um, as, as abbot, is, um, is all pretty miraculous too. And so um, I'm very glad to be here and still part of it in some way. Thank you very much, Sophie, Chintamani. So the, uh, the next person I'd like to speak is uh, Alan Vipassi, who was also a, a monastic um, in the first, uh, first wave of uh, Amravati's life. And um, he was, uh, you can spot him in the pictures of the uh, uh, opening ceremonies in uh, Anagarika robes at that time. So he'll uh, talk a little bit about uh, that, uh, the uh, preparations for the opening ceremony and the creation of the, the first stupa here. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's uh, very nice to be here. Met, met a number of people I haven't seen for 20 years or so. It's been a joyous occasion. <clears throat> I think one of the, the first things I remember about Amravati was uh, before I ever came here, we had a... Um, member of the English Sangha Trust, Morris Walsh, who was uh, spending the Rains Retreat as a monk, elderly gentleman, very distinguished, and uh, he was teaching us Pali at Chithurst a little bit. And, um, <clears throat> and so they had a leaflet printed, of uh, a three-panel leaflet printed of Amravati's before... Uh, we started the places by dim recollection, and uh, they made a spelling mistake on the front of the leaf. They spelt Amravati with a V A T H I, and uh, Morris uh, gleefully pointed out that we, instead of the Deathless Realm, we had named it the Deathless Bladder. <laughs> <coughs> he got the Pali wrong. <laughs> So the leaflets had to be reprinted. <laughs> so uh, there's kind of, um, I have a lot of uh, affectionate recollections of these early days. I was an Anagarika at the time. I, I remember that when Amravati started <clears throat> the first day, we had a pickup truck that we borrowed and uh, did three trips in 24 hours, taking people and materials up from Chithurst and up, up to here. The nuns had just arrived um, on their pilgrimage. And uh, Ajahn Suchito, um mentioned to me that uh, the, he noticed that the, the, the male members of the, the new arrivals were already starting to get into the plumbing and... Uh, and he said that he'd noticed that some of the nuns were already starting to to uh, wash clothes and clean things up. So it was, people were just kind of 
just just all hands on deck right from the very beginning and at the time these if you looked at an aerial view of amravati it was designed to radiate heat it was uh, it it, <laughs> it had it just looked like a radiator from the air an aerial view of it, it the, none of the buildings had any insulation and they had a huge boiler over behind the kitchen big boiler room um and the heating bills at that time we're talking about 1984 the purchase price of the property i think was 100 200,000 yeah and the the heating bills were 30,000 pounds a year <coughs> and the the people who vacated the school the they left behind a month's worth of heating oil and so of course they didn't turn the heating on straight away but probably october november the heating was running for a short while until the oil ran out and then it just got cold and it got colder and colder to the point where one of the monks ajahn chandapalo told me that um he we all were all working really hard um he was um, working on the plumbing trying to uh we were trying to section things off so so uh um the 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 whole site was all all run on a central heating system and uh, so they they isolated just the sala and and ran that from a a wood burning stove <clears throat> and so there was heating over there but he he was working really hard and one night he said he 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 went to bed he made himself a cup of coffee to have uh before, uh, to to drink before he went to sleep and he forgot to drink it and he left it on his bedside table and when he woke up the next morning it was solid it was ice <laughs> it was really cold and i think that year it was an unusually cold year and there were temperatures recorded in the locality of, of minus 23 and minus 24 at times so we were working really hard uh, insulating the buildings and uh um i had a hand in in helping to design and refit the retreat center kitchen from uh, using a lot of second hand industrial catering equipment <coughs> and it came to the um may time the the prospect of the opening ceremony and i think people were pretty burnt out and there was a kind of push to get everything ready for this big sangha gathering a lot of monks coming from thailand and uh, monks and nuns coming from the other monasteries and lots of people <clears throat> and sister jodika who has to be just about the most determined person that i've ever met in my life um <clears throat> she her background was she was an administrator in the spanish embassy um and by all accounts she pretty much kept the place running um <clears throat> she had uh an idea for creating a ceremonial focal point out in the field now the the field was just this massive expanse of grass there 
I heard this story of when Ajahn Sumedho in, in, took Ajahn Tiridamo up to the, the field to, to have a look at and he was showing, showing Ajahn Tiridamo around, uh, around Amravati and, and Ajahn, Ajahn Sumedho is a very expansive character and Ajahn Tiridamo is kind of a bit more <laughs> the opposite end of the spectrum um, and uh, Ajahn Sumedho said look Tiridamo look at this look at the space look at the space and Ajahn Tiridamo said Who's going to cut the grass? <laughs> you need these two kinds of viewpoints of energies to to, to balance things out. <laughs> but it was <laughs> it was just an open space. There was nothing there. It was just an open field. It looked rather rather. It was nice, but it was there was nothing very special about it. And Sister Jyotika said. Um, we, she took me out there and she said, we need a spiritual focal point. We are going to have a stupa there, a chaitya, a, a pagoda. And she said, "What? because what? I was one of the kind of practical people, and she said, I want you to help me build it. And it's just, it only needs to be like the front two sides. It's kind of almost like, Semi three dimensional, but we, you know people don't need to see the back of it. Just as long as we've got, <laughs> I've got the front bit, <laughs> and so it seemed a bit a bit of a strange idea. But uh, so we started kind of brainstorming and and looking in books and thinking about how we could do this and where we'd get the bits from and and talking to people. And one of the monks had some uh, connections with a. Uh, a company that made some kind of plaster fabrications for um, shopping centers. And uh, so we we went down to see them, and they, they lent us a mold, which was a, a quarter of a cone, which we could use to cast with, and they gave us some uh, materials, some interior um, glass-reinforced plaster. And we we used it to cast these four quarters of a cone. And uh, they had the kind of flanges so you could bolt them together. And Sister, Sister Jodhika actually was bolting the, the four quarters of these, uh, the four, the four um, parts of this cone together. And she got stuck inside. <laughs> uh, not for very long, but uh, there weren't many people about and... Uh, so we'd been working on this together and I had to go off and do something and I forgot about the fact that she wouldn't be able to get out. <laughs> so um, we laid a... We, we had a, a kind of circular area mode and we laid a, uh, a bed of um, concrete paving stones, that's right, out on, the, uh, on a, on a uh, foundation of sand. This is all made to be... Taken apart, two weeks later, we thought this was going to just be a very temporary thing. And so we had a, we had a plinth or a, a foundation ready for the um, for the the cone, and we took it out onto the field uh, on the back of a truck that we had, and we put it in the, on this on this plinth. And from a distance, it looked like a nuclear missile poking through the. The ground, like the nose cone, 
this was 1984 when there was a lot of, uh, of, of fear of nuclear war and uh, so people didn't like the idea of a, a nuclear missile looking object in the middle of the field at Amravati. So people, but people started getting interested, something was happening. There was energy, and like in the beginning, it was like, oh, don't, we don't want to know about anything more than what we've got already. This is just, we've got too much on. We're exhausted, like, no more. But people started getting really quite uh, buzzed up and inspired by this. And uh, so <clears throat> I was concerned with making the top of the, of, of the stupa look um, a bit more like a stupa rather than a, a nose cone. So um, we went out and found a found a, a steel dish that we put on on the top, and then there was a, a road cone, and then there were, you know one of those orange and white striped road cones that you see. And we found one. Of, we found in inverted commas one of those from somewhere. I don't know quite where. <laughs> uh, maybe in a ditch somewhere. And then um, we had nine concentric baking tins, which were screwed on a threaded rod um, on the top with a kind of carved wooden flame made out of uh, bits of wood and body filler. And meanwhile, a lot of other people got involved, and, uh, and Venerable Subito, this amazing uh, uh, New Zealander carpenter monk, had um, done four beautiful little um, hardboard archways, niches, and uh, put some plumbing pipe around the bottom with chicken wire and cement to, for, um, to kind of break up the nose cone effect. And you'll see photographs of uh, the finished thing in the, in the exhibition in the Ubon room. And it, it, it was a, a beautiful um, little stupa which just exceeded anybody's expectations. Mr. Premadasa, um, the president of Sri Lanka at the time, had come, came to visit, and he donated uh, four Buddha Rupa images for the, uh, the little niches. We, initially, we took, whenever we had a... Uh, for this ceremony and for other ceremonies we had, we, we would take the Buddha statues out and put them in the, uh, in the niches. But they were quite valuable things, so we take them back and, and uh, bring them in at night <laughs> but then we these uh, Buddha Rupas that uh, Dr. Mr. Brimadasa donated were I think they were fiberglass and they were very nice and so we could glue them there and, and leave them out in all weathers and it was it was just an amazing experience for to see how this this energy gathered and and uh, Something just formed itself, some, something which exceeded our expectations and, uh, and aspirations and just, just manifested itself through this uh, um, incredible outpouring of energy and, and faith that people had. And what I didn't know at the time was uh, that Mr. Premadasa had also um, commissioned a copy to be made at the Sambodhi Vihara in, uh, in Sri Lanka. Colombo 8 and a few years later I went to Sri Lanka as a monk and unbeknownst to me I was billeted at this temple as the first uh, place that I stayed fresh off the plane in Colombo and I arrived there at night and then the, it was 
got up and was walking around just and came round the corner and suddenly in front of my eyes there's this replica of the Amravati stupa which I had helped to create and they had they had replicated it exactly right down to the chicken wire and plumbing <laughs> pipe and they'd got the road cone and the f- nine baking tins just perfectly it was a little bigger uh, but uh, I was most impressed. <laughs> so it was a, anyway, it was a, it was a wonderful thing to be part of, uh, living here at Amravati, and I feel very privileged to have uh, had an opportunity to um, to have lived here and been and been a, a sangha member as. Uh, a few of us now have found our way into a different kind of a life, but uh, still feel very connected with the Dhamma and still teaching meditation and uh, involved with Gaia House a lot down in Devon. So those are my few uh, memories and recollections of that time. And it's, uh, it's been very nice to be here with you all. Thank you. So next up, Ajahn Vajiro is uh, the Vajra. <laughs> so uh, was very much part of the things of the early days. Uh, he was here at Amravati during the first year. Um, and then in the summer of, of 85, uh, I came down from Harnham and uh, we had a, a very brief changeover period. Ajahn Vajiro handed over his duties and uh, roles to me and then I, I stayed here for the next 10 years. But... Uh, Listen now to uh, Ajahn Vajira's reflections on uh, that uh, earliest of times. Thank you, Tanachan. Ajahn Amaro, thank you, the Sangha um, and community, and thank you, all your lay, lay people who have been so supportive, <clears throat> both in the past and, and now. I have an immense feeling of gratitude um, for this life. Um, it's been a surprise to me. Uh, I joined the community, as some of you know, in 1978, uh, intending just to help out for three months. And as I say to people, it's been a long three months. I, I got down to Chithurst when that started and thought, well, this is going to be too difficult. But also people had encouraged me to go to, to Thailand. So in 79, just after they started Chithurst, um, I went to Thailand. And I stayed there for five years, not really wanting to come back. Uh, the last monastery I stayed in was um, by the uh, uh, South China Sea. There was a short walk from the Kuti to the beach. The food was vegetarian and it was very quiet and there was no work to be done. <laughs> <laughs> but um, my father wanted me to come back and uh, see my mother, whom I hadn't seen for five or six years. So he sent me a ticket, and I arrived back and um, eventually made myself um, meeting with the uh, Ajahn Jayasaro and Ajahn Kemananda, who'd come back to visit their parents. And uh, we went down to Chittas together. Uh, and um, they went back to Thailand and stayed there most of the... Ajahn Jayasara is still there. And uh, 
I had only a one-way ticket, and Ajahn Sumedho spoke to me when I was down at Chittos. I'd known Chittos before, and I thought it was a lovely place, and I thought that I was going to stay there. But he said, can you come up and help at Amravati? We're just starting this new place, Amravati Buddhist Center. This is going to be a place which will be run by lay people. All the work will be done by lay people. (laughs) (laughs) And it's for the nuns and for the lay people. The monks will just be there. There'll be a small place for the monks to come and stay quietly from time to time to teach. (laughs) I said, oh, yes, okay. Um, as, As you've heard, it wasn't like that at all. I'd, um, I'd come, I joined the community with the intention to help. The intention, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't because I felt that I um, had anything particularly wrong with my life, that I just figured I'd just give a hand for a few, for a little while. And that has really been my attitude, a sense of, of uh, what can I do to help? So when I was here, there was just such a lot to do. I don't think I've ever worked quite so hard. There really wasn't a let up. Um, with, from one day to the next, I don't think that there was any sort of breaks. Um, and for that year, I don't, you know, I was just exhausted, I think, most of the time. I remember learning how to swear again. They talked about, <laughs> they talked about um, isolating the, the um, plumbing under the sala there. And I remember working with um, great big um, uh, grips and um, pipes and things. Still some grips? And um, I can remember swear words coming into my mind that I hadn't used for years. (laughs) I didn't actually get them out, but (laughs) I can remember them coming. Um, And it was, and as as people know, the, the place was... When the oil ran out, it was freezing. We even tried to get the, um, the old um, boilers working. The boilers were originally coal-fired, and they'd been converted to oil. So we figured, well, if we just put enough of a fire in there, they'll probably heat the place up. And we tried to get pallets, old wooden pallets, and break them up and burn them and see if we could get enough heat out of the boilers to try to... You can't get enough heat to try to heat anything. But we tried. And when it did actually get cold, I can remember the... You know, these... um, I was sleeping in the... um, What was the the girls' accommodation? The, The girls' accommodation was where the monks now live. The boys were here, and where the... The nuns are was the accommodation for the staff. So they had, you because know, it was a place for nuns, mainly a place for nuns and for lay people. So the best places were given to the, to the nuns and to the lay people. And we, had, we were stuck over there with them in the old girls' accommodation with the, um, where there was the dentist chair. And <laughs> we thought that this was a place for torture. <laughs> And, I, and Ajahn Sumedho stayed in, uh, in, in the corridor with the elephants. He used to say the elephants would come up and down because there was just lino in the corridor. There was no, um, 
wasn't soundproof and it was really cold. And I was in one of the rooms and Ajahn Chandapala reminded me that I, one night yeah, there'd been a burst and the whole of that, my floor was completely flooded. And I'd, I'd called Ajahn Chandapala who's, who'd learned to be a, um, a plumber and I had to move out of my room. And then I moved to the back of the, the old Dharma Hall, which was, there were a couple of rooms there that were later converted into rooms for Ajahn Sumedho. They were the changing rooms. And I remember in there, um, I was sleeping on some mats like this, and uh, in the morning trying to air the mats, and the sort of ripping sound, because they'd frozen solid <laughs> to, the, to the ground. And the sense of bleakness about the place but there was a lot of, as everybody has said, a lot of, uh, of energy to just try to help and work. There was never... Yeah, I think that if you were really selfish, you couldn't, have, you couldn't stay here. Um, it just wouldn't work. There was such an, uh, a generosity of spirit. As I said about these places, these places are supported because there's the wish that there be enlightened beings. Um, that's why... Um, that's why people support monasteries. Um, that's why people teach. Um, you know, the, the best thing to be would be that if, if all the lay people are enlightened and all the bhikkhus are enlightened, and, and this is a place to practice that, that to practice enlightenment. And it, it's a place for, for generating, generating generosity. Um, the, the, the community here give of themselves. We don't get paid. And... Uh, uh, and we're supported by the generosity that of, of people who, who give and support, want to support the place. And we hope that through this, um, there's also a possibility of generating um, virtue. Because one of the reasons that you support these places is because you feel that the people who are living here are virtuous. Um, and that's what you'd like to support. And in turn, the people here like to encourage you to be on your best behavior, both now uh, when you're here and also when you leave here. So we encourage you to keep um, the five precepts and to practice virtue. So we hope that we generate virtue. And finally, and most importantly, I feel that I hope that we generate wisdom. Um, I hope that we generate uh, uh, wisdom both within the community and support that and, and support uh, wisdom in your own lives and in our own lives to see how we can leave these lives so that they can be a blessing, a blessing for ourselves and a blessing for others. That's, that's our um, sort of raison d'etre um, uh, to um, support uh, dana sila bhavana, um, to support uh, the cultivation of generosity, virtue, and I hope uh, wisdom, the cultivation of a, a truly beautiful human life. And yeah, it's a it's loads of people here, loads of people passing through, loads of different stories of different things happening. Um, I can remember being really, really tired. I remember one day, and I was asleep in this room at the back here, which was back of the things. And I th somebody came in, and um, I just, I just woke up, saw somebody had come in, and just said, "Get out." And just went straight back to sleep again. I don't know what on earth she'd come in for, but she, and why she turned into my room. But um, it was it was a bizarre experience. Um, and 
just the sense of working and giving, which was um, part part of this. Uh, but and and this and as people say, the simplicity. I think that um, I think that Pamela's here, and um, she she told me about cooking. I think that we, she would be able to cook for the whole community, which must have been twenty or thirty people. She said, on that wood burning stove, and still have time left over. I think she just two big pots. That was it. <laughs> you look at the <laughs> surgery nowadays. <laughs> one of rice and one of beans. <laughs> That's it. That's it for everybody. <laughs> so I'd like to encourage people to remember that. And you know, when we feel discontent about what's happening here, to really encourage a sense of you know of of what 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 can make this life more beautiful for ourselves and for others. Um, I'm happy that this continues. I think that you know, the idea of it being Amaravati Buddhist Center was idealistic. The idea that all the lay people were going to do the work was com- idealistic. It didn't work like that. It, you know, it turned into Amaravati Buddhist Monastery. And that sense of the monastic community um, being central and wanting to support that. The rest can hang off that. Um, if we try to make it uh, a place that is is um, just run by lay people and for lay people, I don't think the bhikkhus will stick around. I don't think the monastic community will hold together. You have to have something that actually holds what is the center. What is the center of Amravati Buddhist center? And um, now the, the Dharma Vinaya um, is, is, I think, what we will um, look to if this place is going to survive. So I, I trust that this will be a place that continues to center around the Dharma Vinaya. Um, and uh, I wish it well. Thank you. <laughs>